First Chronicles chapter 18. Let's start with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to each and every one of us. And Lord, we thank you for the lessons we learn in the life of King David and a lesson that was being handed down long after he had gone to heaven to the next generation that was coming back to Jerusalem. And Lord, it's a lesson for us today. And so Lord, I pray we'd leave here challenged, encouraged, strengthened, and exhorted, Lord. Lord, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said... Amen. So as we've talked about, Chronicles is chronicling what had happened in previous generations for those who've been in bondage in Babylon for 70 years and have now been set free and are coming back into Jerusalem. And they needed to hear their history. They needed to be reminded of all that God had done and why Jerusalem was so important and so significant as they were coming back into a city that had been destroyed. So they're coming back to rebuild it. They're coming back to get the focus back on the Lord when they're there. And so this is a good reminder for them, but it's a good reminder for us. And that's what I just was hearing about a pastor this week that said, we shouldn't teach the Old Testament because that's in the past. Well, the whole Bible, most of the Bible's in the past, but we do have a lot of prophecy that's coming, amen? And nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian, amen? So last week, just briefly, we looked at living every day in light of God's promises to seek godly counsel, how to respond when God says no, to remember all that God has done in you and through you. God's faithfulness in the past assures us for God's promises in the future, to come humbly before the Lord and to humbly affirm God's promises. And that's how the chapter ended. Remember that David was praying to the Lord and referred to himself 10 times as your servant, your servant, your servant. He didn't say as the great and awesome king, as the one that you anointed as a young man. He just referred to himself as a servant. The Bible tells us if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And so it's never about us, it's always about him. Amen? It's never about us making our name great, because that'll never happen, right? The only good in us is Jesus, but to point people to the Lord. Now, at chapter 18, if you have your outline, grab it. So David is now king. David is not just anointed, but now appointed. All the 12 tribes are back together again. They're in Jerusalem. He wanted to build a house, a temple for the Lord, but the Lord wouldn't allow it. Other kings have recognized him as king by building him a palace. And now we are at a place where David has some business to do for the kingdom of God. He's going to go out and fight their enemies. So in these brief 18 or 17 verses, here's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see him fight the enemies to the north, the south, the east, and the west. He's going to go after them all. And he's going to go out with, with great boldness, trusting that God is for him. And so we too have battles that we have to fight spiritually every single day. We have the battle with our own flesh. We have the battle with the enemy, and we have the battle with the world. Amen? And God's called us to live for the Lord and to trust in Him. So, if you got your outline, it's time to enter into the battle to live a life that the Lord has called you to. How many of you know that God has a calling on your life? God has called you. God has a calling on your life. God has a plan for your life. And the sad part is that often we miss out on it because we get so distracted by the world, or we're, we're 
we're so upset about things of the world that we lose sight of what we're called to do. So here's how we enter into what God has for us. First, by waking up to God's calling upon your life. And this all begins by getting back to your first love. Here's the reality. If I love my wife, I'm going to serve her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to tell, I'm going to love to introduce her to other people. I'm going to work hard to provide for her and my children and my grandchildren. But guys, if we love the Lord, we will live a life that brings glory and honor to his name. We will point people to him. We will love to introduce other people to him. And we will be unashamed of him. And so we need to return to our first love. Don't answer this. Do you love Jesus more than anything and more than anyone? And some people will say, I've been in marriage counseling. Well, I don't want my wife to love Jesus more than she loves me. Dude, if she doesn't, your marriage is in trouble. Amen? Because you know, the best thing that can happen is to have a wife that loves Jesus more than she loves you or a husband that loves Jesus more than he loves you. Because if he does, he will serve you and love you and honor you and lay down his life for you. We need to return to our first love as we wake again waking up to God's calling. Take your focus off your circumstances and the trials of life and start doing what the Lord has called you to do. If you don't know what that is, spend some time in prayer and ask him. If you don't know what it is, dig a well and see if something comes up, right? I mean, dig a well and see if it sprouts some water. Go, go step out into some ministries where there's a need and see if it's a fit for you. By the way, if you try it and you don't feel called to it, we're not gonna keep you captive. <laughs> We're not going to chain you up until you can't leave, right? We don't want anybody doing anything that they're not called to do, amen? Number two, it's time to enter into the battle. Step out in faith, trusting God to show up in a powerful way. We need to leave our comfort zone behind. We need to get out of, here's the reality. How many of you know that when you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord, that you will be gripped and grieved by things you didn't do for God? Where you had opportunities and you didn't do it where you had a chance to share your faith with somebody and you chickened out, where you had an opportunity to, to step into a ministry, but it was kind of scary to do it. And I think we're all going to have those moments, but here's the reality. I'd rather think about it now than face it then and do something about it now instead of recognizing then that it's too late. Amen? We want to be used for the kingdom of God. And the way you do that is leave that comfort zone behind. Get out of your comfort zone. Live every day trusting in the promises of God. I love in the Bible that there are thousands of promises. There's 365 times in the Bible he tells us not to fear because he knows we're going to struggle with being afraid. And we don't fear, you know, if we fear God, we won't fear man. Amen? We won't fear anything else. And also believe that the Lord will do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask, hope, or think. So walk, wake up to the God's calling upon your life. Step out in faith, trusting God to show you, show up in a powerful way. And seek to do God's will, God's way for God's glory. We must never take the credit. And if you've heard me say this many times. Here's what happens. Too often, you find out if you're a servant by how, someone, by how you respond when someone treats you like one. Well, I'm doing all this for the church and I show up early and nobody's, nobody's you know, giving me high fives or you know, showing me any love and no one's talking about how amazing I am. And Well, if you're doing it for any of that, then stop doing it. But if you're doing it for the Lord, it's a get to, not a have to. Amen? If we're going to sweep the floors, let's sweep the floors for Jesus. Amen? Let's do everything that we do to bring glory and honor to his name. Seek to do God's will, God's way for his glory. Never take the credit for what God is doing in you and through you. Because you know what? We're all 
the foolish things of the world that God chooses to use. So he gets all the glory. Again, he, if, we don't, if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out his name. If we won't preach, then the donkey will. Amen? Balaam gets referred to in tonight's text. Secondly, look for every opportunity to give God the glory. I, I, I want to encourage you. I, I, I just tell you that God, had, this has happened almost 30, this probably 30 years ago, where God put it on my heart every morning to pray for divine appointments. Lord, just give me a divine appointment. May I encourage somebody who already knows you? May I share my faith with somebody who does not? And Lord, just bring those divine appointments. And can I tell you, in 30 years, I've had a divine appointment virtually every single day. I have them every day. It's one of the reasons I still have a full-time job. The reason I love to go to work every day, because I get to go see people and talk to people. And, and it's amazing how God brings opportunities every single day to share our faith. The worst thing we can do is, is take the antidote to the death serum of, can, of you know, sin, the cancer of this world, and keep it to ourselves. Looking for an opportunity to give God the glory. And then stay humble, broken, and desperate, which makes you usable. When you cease to be humble, you cease to be usable. What, what nauseates you more than somebody who's pretentious and condescending? Is there anything worse? I'm gonna, I, I have to say, Lord, help me not to knock them out in Jesus' name. Amen? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Do you know how significant and important I am? I know who you are. You're stinking about sinner just like me, headed for hell if you don't get saved. Can I get an amen to that? But there's this mentality, and we fall into the same trap sometimes. You know, we start to listen to, we read our own press clippings or we listen to what other people say about us. This is true even of people in ministry. We need to be careful. And then finally, not only seek to do God's will, God's way for his glory, but give ministry away. You know, our God is a God of order. And, you, and here's the reality. You have gifts I don't have. I might have gifts you don't have. That allows you to minister to me and me to minister to you and both of us to minister to the whole body. Amen? And if we had nothing but eyes, we couldn't hear anything. If we had nothing but ears, we couldn't see anything. If we didn't have voices, we couldn't praise him. And so I'm so thankful, and that's why Pastor Joshua gets up here every single time he does announcements, and he talks about opportunities to serve. It's not because we're trying to draft people into doing stuff. It's because we recognize what a blessing it is to serve the Lord. And if you will step out and let God use you, how blessed you will be by stepping out in faith. How many can bear witness to that? You stepped out and you know who grows the most? Often people serving the most. Now, again, we're not serving so God will love us. We serve because he loves us. We're not serving so he'll save us. We're serving because we're saved. Nobody has to tell me to go love on my wife. I love my wife. Nobody has to tell me to use the gifts God's given me because it's a get to, it's a joy, it's a blessing, and it's not a have to. Amen? So let's begin there. Looking at it's time to enter into the battle, to live a life that the Lord has called you to. So now David has just prayed this prayer, referred to himself as your servant 10 times, and now we're first going to look at waking up to God's calling upon your life. It says there, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines. Aren't these every, when you think of David, when I think of David, who do you think of next when you think of David? David and? Goliath or Saul. But Goliath, but Saul, I meant to Saul. But here's the reality. When, when you grow up as a kid, 
I remember being a kid that I would really perk up because, you know, in Sunday school, at least a couple times a year, you're going to hear about David and Goliath. Well, I'm David. You know, oh, I love the name David. Okay, he, he, beat, he destroyed, defeated Goliath. Well, Goliath was a Philistine. And the Philistines were the arch enemies in a lot of ways to Israel. And they were constantly coming after Israel. They were constantly a, 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 the people that surrounded them, and they were giants in the land, and they had a fierce army. And from a physical perspective, you would think that the Philistines would handle the children of Israel. And David is the first one that we see in Scripture that makes the Philistines run away. Usually the Philistines were running towards Israel, but because of David's faithfulness, the Philistines were running away from Israel, and this happened when he was a teenager. David and Goliath, I love that story so much. Goliath, 11 foot 750, coming down to the Valley of Elah. If we go back to Israel again, we'll go to the exact spot where it happened. He walks down to the bottom of that valley, and on one side, you've got the army of Israel mounted up, full armor on, glistening in the sun. On the other side, there's the Philistine, their full army. Saul has already been told because of his disobedience and rebellion that God has ripped the kingdom from him, and he is their king, head and shoulders above everybody else. So Goliath comes down, and he's basically challenging Saul to come out and fight him. And if we, if I win, then you serve us. But if you win, we will serve you. And for 40 days, number of testing, Goliath comes down. How deep is your voice if you're 11 foot 750? Imagine Goliath comes down, defy the armies. I can just, you know, I just see that he's got armor on. He's got an armor bearer in front of him, two against one. And here's this guy, and he's got a weaver's beam for a spear. He's got a, a, a spearhead that weighs 15 pounds. This guy is just awesome. And he comes down and says, come on out, I defy the armies. And everybody shakes and runs. They go hide behind their armor. King Saul is so scared to death that he starts bribing people. Hey, if you'll fight him, I'll give you my daughter and no taxes for life. Sounds pretty good, huh? Dude, you must be scared half to death you're giving your daughter away and no taxes for the rest of your life. All they have to do now is give you free gas for a week, <laughs> right? But the reality is, and what's crazy is everybody is scared to death that nobody would fight him. And then David gets sent out by his dad to go check on his brothers. Go see how your brothers are doing. Here's some cheese. Go give it to your brothers. Now, what has David been doing in the meantime? He's, he's a shepherd. And do you know that God was using David's time as a shepherd to prepare him to be a warrior and then a king? Because when he was a shepherd, nobody was watching and he was worshiping the Lord and he was risking his life to kill lions and bears and anybody who came along to attack the sheep. He was laying down his life. See, he, had, he was not afraid to lay down his life against Goliath because he'd been laying down his life every day for the sheep. And he was ready for it. And see, when we go through trials and we go through difficulty, understand that God is preparing you for something even greater. Amen? So when we go through it, it's, no suffering is wasted. So when David enters the camp, you heard me say it every time, the Holy Spirit just showed up because he had been anointed by God. He was already anointed king at this point. He comes walking into the camp. He sees 11 foot 750. Everybody else is scared to death. And he doesn't see a giant against a boy. He sees a mere man against almighty God because he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? Praise the Lord for King David. Amen. And he was a kid, probably 13 years old. And so 
Everybody else is mocking him. His brothers go, go back to your little sheep shepherd boy. They want him to go home. But he says, I'll fight him. Well, Saul was so desperate, he's like, dude, I'll take it. You know, nobody would take my, my daughter or free taxes, so uh, he's willing to go. Go right ahead. And he put Saul's armor on him. And Saul was, you know, the biggest man in the, in the crowd, and it was too much because I don't need this. And I love that he picks up five smooth stones from the creek in the valley of Elah there, and he runs toward the giant. Everybody else was scared to death. See, if God is for us, who can be against us? And David runs towards Goliath. And Goliath has, Goliath has an armor bearer in front of him holding up one of his shields. It's two against one. And he goes out there and he slings that first rock. And by the way, people say, why did he pick up five stones? I thought he had faith. Wouldn't one do it? Well, one did do it, but there was a tradition, this is what the belief is, that when you killed somebody, you had to take on their whole family, and it's rumored that Goliath had four brothers. She's like, I got five rocks, because Goliath is going down and bring those four brothers right after that, we'll take care of them too. And David went out and slays Goliath, and can you imagine the sound of 11 foot 750 just falling dead, and when it hits the ground with all that armor that's on him, and the clanging that happened, and the smoke that went up in the air, and then all of a sudden, you see, when, they, when the dust clears, there's David standing on Goliath, holding up his head with both hands that he had chopped off with his sword. And what did the Philistines do? They ran away. And what did the children of Israel do for the first time ever? They ran after the Philistines. They're always running away from them. But because one man stood up, now they ran after them instead of running away from them. And guys, when we make a stand for the Lord, it encourages others to take a stand when nobody else will. Amen? So this is David. And now he's been anointed king. And the Philistines are mounting up. Do you think he's afraid? Think he's concerned? Now, we'll say this. Right before this, didn't he run and hide out with the Philistines? You guys remember this? He got fearful, and he ran, and he hid with the Philistines. He offered to fight on the Philistines' side against the children of Israel. You know, sometimes we can get in that place where we walk away from the Lord, and when we allow the circumstances of life, you know, King Saul's been going after him. I've been anointed king for a long time, and why is this happening? And he became fearful. But then he turned back to the Lord, and the fear was gone. And now he was ready again. And notice what it says there again in verse one. After this, it came to pass that David, what? Ran from the Philistines? Is that what it says? He attacked the Philistines. He went after them. He was, he was not afraid because he knew that the Lord was with him. See, since he made them run those many decades earlier, the Philistines had reasserted themselves as the mightiest army around. And the Philistines had been defeating everybody in the land. And the children of Israel were next on the agenda. But this time it wasn't King Saul who was operating in the flesh. Now it's King David walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get a whole different result. Because if God is for us, again, who can be against us? We're going to see them running for their lives again. Notice it says there, the Philistines and took Gath. Now, it says in the companion text in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, it says they took Methagama. Methagama means mother city. So Gath was the largest city of the Philistines. It was their headquarters. It's where Goliath was from. He was a Gathite. And so their largest city, not only did he subdue the Philistines, that means he rendered them, uh, you know, put them down. 
They were subject to him. He defeated them. Then he took their mightiest fortress and their greatest city, and he overran it, and he destroyed it, and there was victory. And you know, for some of us, there's that, there's that heavy-duty sin in our life or that one thing that we continue to struggle with, whether it's addiction or pornography or anger or bitterness or unbelief or whatever it is. And I want you to know that if God is for you, you can have victory over that. Amen? And that's what happens. He goes in and takes down not only the army, but the fortress and the kingdom. And now the Philistines are subject to Israel. Now, I love this because as we go through this, we're going to see all these other armies being wiped out. And all it reminds me of is every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? The enemies are all going to lose because if God is for us, who can be against us? Gath, again, was considered the mother of all their cities. And again, Goliath, his first conquest, had lived and grown up in Gath. So he's taken it to the Philistines. He attacks their foremost city, their strongest fortress. He had seen God give him victory against Goliath, and he trusted that God would bring victory again. You know what allows us to step out in faith? It's trusting that God will show up. Amen? If you know, if you trust that God's going to show up, if I step out in faith here, if I trust the Lord, I know that God will show up because God is faithful. David no longer confused about where he stands. He's no longer hanging out with the Philistines. You know what? Because he's God's man. He's the anointed king. He's a mighty warrior. He's doing God's will without fear or hesitation. He's defeating army, Israel's enemies. He's expanding Israel's territory. And he went from pretending to be insane and walking in fear and faithlessness and frustration to a mighty man of God, spirit-filled warrior and king. See, God can do that with all of us. Maybe you see yourself as the fearful one, the struggling one, the one who is distant from God. You can take a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. Amen? He wants to have intimate fellowship with you. If you're far from God, it's not God's fault. It's ours. Amen? He subdued the Philistines. He took control over their greatest and the most formidable enemy that they had, and he's not going to stop there. Look at verse 2. So he warms up to waking up to God's calling. He's back to his first love. David's back where he was when he fought Goliath the first time. He's back to doing God's will and God's work with fearlessness and faithfulness and trusting the Lord. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now the Moabites, that's modern day Jordan. So if you go to Israel, these cities that he's going to talk about, these are all the lands that surround Israel even to today. And Jordan is right on the border. If you go to Israel and you, you, there's a place where you go up on a high hill and you can look down and you can see the border and there's Jordan right there. Syria and Jordan, you can see them right there. Now what's interesting about the Moabites is David has a little Moabite blood in him because the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Do you remember when Sodom and Gomorrah got wiped out? Okay. And Lot, his daughters got him drunk. And then they slept with their dad, and some of the descendants of that union were the Moabites. Now, we also know that there's another well-known Moabite, her name's Ruth. If you, know, if you knew the old Bible rap we used to teach our youth group, Ruth is sweet as honey butter. She's King David's great-grandmother. Amen? And so, so David is one-eighth Moabite. 
And so here are the Moabites, but they have become an enemy. Now there's another man who was a Moabite, who helped the Moabites. His name was Balaam. You guys remember that? And Balak, the king, said, man, we can't fight these guys. I want you to curse them. Curse them. And every time Balaam tried to curse him, he would stand up and he would bless him. And then he told him, the only way you're going to get to them is send your beautiful women down there and have them distract them away to worship their idols. And it worked. Nothing new under the sun. Drew them away. But at the end of it, Balaam told him, after the donkey talked, by the way, you guys remember that? He's on a donkey. He's headed. He sees the angel. Balaam can't see it, and the donkey just drops to the ground and finally turns around and says, Pastor Dave, paraphrase, dude, don't you see the angel up there? We're about to get killed. And then he starts arguing with the donkey. You know you're messed up when you're arguing with the talking donkey, amen? Shrek copied the Bible because that's where the first talking donkey, right? But here's what happens is that now, now we're in that situation where the Moabites are going to now reap the consequences of what had been promised when Balaam tried to curse Israel and God came back and told them to tell the king, Balak, that no, you're going to be cursed. No, you're going to be taken captive. So we fast forward and these are Ruth's relatives. These are descendants of Lot. And yet God brings righteous judgment upon them. Moab began its modern day Jordan. And this is Lot's was Lot's grandson, and the nation is located east of the Dead Sea. And notice how David is conquering the nations that are all around him, one at a time. Again, David had been on good terms with the Moabites in 1 Samuel 22. said, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him in the time that David was in the stronghold. Here's what we find out later. And this is written actually in the, the Mishnah and it says, these Jewish writers assert that after David asked the king of Moab to take care of his parents, that the king of Moab turned around and massacred David's, massacred David's parents and his family. Um, that's a problem for David. So he asked the Moabites to care for his family. Again, these are extra biblical writings. It's the Mishnah written by uh, first century Jews. And they're saying that, that this is what happened, that he attacked their family. And maybe you know, that might be why David's bringing, again, judgment. Now we know from, it says, there, it says in the second Samuel chapter eight, that after he defeated the Moabites, he, he strung them out in three lanes, three lines. He had one line of people, one line of people, one line of people. And then he went and he picked two lines and killed everybody in those two lines. So he killed two-thirds of their army. Now, you've heard the term decimated before? That's a military term that literally means that 10% of the army died. 10%. What is it when 66% of the, end of, the, of the army dies? Well, David wiped them out. Now, why? Again, because of their, their rebellion against God, they were given an opportunity to repent, and two-thirds of their army was wiped out. We're taking all the land that God had given to Israel, fearlessly and victoriously taking on Israel's enemies. And again, the Moabites had paid the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, and he told them that God would bring vengeance upon them. And here's the fulfillment to that prophecy that took place back in Numbers 14. So number one, waking up to God's calling upon your life. 
David's not wandering around anymore. He's not hiding in caves anymore. He's not trying to figure out what he's supposed to be doing anymore. He knows he's called to be the king. He knows he's called to reestablish Jerusalem as a place of worship. He knows that he's to defeat the enemies that God had given them the land. By the way, that promise given to Abraham, the time when the most of that land was occupied was when King David was ruling. That's when they had most of the land that God had promised to Israel more than any other time because David was faithful. So point number two, step out in faith, trusting God to show up in a powerful way. Look at verse three. And David defeated Hadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. So this is Syria, modern-day Syria. So we saw Jordan, and now modern-day Syria. And during the times of, of Saul and David and Solomon, this was an area that had formed into a separate kingdom. It was north of Damascus. And the Euphrates is the largest river in all of Western Asia, and it starts in Armenia and flows through Turkey, Syria, Iraq, down into the Persian Gulf. So notice how far the river Euphrates is from Israel. If you look at a map, it's as, as much as 250 miles away. But God gave him victory, conquering, conquering the land that God had promised to them, not just the land they already inhabited, but all that God had for them. God wants us to be used far beyond just where we are right now. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. God wants to use us where we live, where we work, but he wants us to be a part of him reaching a lost and a dying world for the Lord. Amen? And so what's happening is their borders are being expanded as David continues to trust what God has said. Well, God said to do it. I'm going to do it, and I'm unashamed of it, and I'm not going to be fearful. Why is David doing all this conquering? Isn't he a little carried away again to Abraham. It says, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, this is in Genesis 15, to your descendants I've given this land as far as the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And here it is. All these hundreds of years later, the land that was given to Abraham, David is being faithful to reclaim it for the Lord. He's simply doing what God, giving, regaining the territory that God had already given them. Verse four, and David took from him 1,000 chariots. This is from Zobah. He took, he took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hung, hamstrung the chariot horses, except he spared enough for them uh, for 100. So he, ham, he hamstrung them, and so he takes their, he not only defeats them, but he keeps them from ever being able to fight again. The only thing I could think of is when World War II with Japan, what was part of the treaty? You know, they bombed us at Pearl Harbor. We went back and destroyed them and said, you're done. You can never have an army again. If you ever do, you're declaring war against us. And they're like, okay. Well, that's what David does here. David not only wins the battle, but he said, brings their horses out, and he hamstrings them all. So they could move slowly, but they could never carry a chariot ever again. So those horses couldn't do anything more than maybe pull a plow. They could never take them out into battle. He takes the horsemen away. He takes away all the things that were used. A chariot was like the equivalent of a modern-day tank. Because if a man was on a chariot with some horses pulling it, man, he could wreak havoc running through a great you know, army of people, right? A lot of times they put those, those sharp things out each side. They'd be cutting people off at the knees. And so you take the chariots away. You take the tanks away. You take away all the armor away. So not only did they subdue them, but now they rendered them ineffective to battle, to fight in the future. It took its prisoners 700 men who rode the chariots and 20,000 foot soldiers. 
and kept a hundred of their horses. The Bible says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Amen? We don't, no, praise God for our military. I'm thankful for it. I'm one of those guys, if I see military people in a restaurant, I buy their lunch. I love them. God bless them. They're laying down their lives for us. Amen to that. Okay? So I love the military. And I love anybody who's fought for our country, and I appreciate that, and I can't say enough about it. Praise God for them. But our ultimate faith isn't in our military. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Praise God for our military. We love them. But praise God that God is faithful, and he's greater than any military that can come against us. Then it says, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. So, so they're winning battles. Other people are coming to help them. We're just wiping them out too. Again, you plus God is a majority. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now keep in mind, these are all nations that are worshiping idols. They're all worshiping false gods. They're attacking the army of the true and living God. And now God is bringing righteous judgment upon them. Then it says there in verse 6, Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So what happened? He enslaved them. And they, began, they became servants to the children of Israel. And they had to bring tribute. They brought taxes. They brought money. Now, mainly what it was was to show that they were servants bound to Israel. Now, again, for us, remember, I can't remember who exactly it was. I'm vapor locking right now. But do you remember when they were wiping all the, all the enemies and some guys showed up and pretended like they were from far away and they entered into a treaty with them? Does anybody remember who that is? I'm, I'm vapor locking right now. And, and so what happens is they come and say, yeah, we're from far away. We want to enter into a treaty. And he finds out they're from right down the road. Why did they do that? Because they said, dude, I'd rather be his slave than his enemy. Amen? And you know what? It's better to be the servant of God than the enemy of God. Amen? I want to be, I want to be a servant. And by the way, it's good to be a servant when the master is wonderful. Amen? You know, that term bond servant throughout the New Testament, it's a slave by choice. What would happen is they would be a servant until they could pay off their debt. But once they paid off their debt, if they loved their master so much, they could become a bond servant for life. And they would go down into the city square and they would run it all through their ear that showed like ownership. And they would now become a part of that family. And all their family was a part of that family for the rest of their lives. Well, guess what? The Bible calls us bonds. It says bond servants. You see, the apostles refer to themselves that way, which means we're slaves by choice. You know why? Because we love our master. And where else are we going to go? And who else has the words of eternal life? Amen? I'd rather be in the dungeon serving Jesus than be in the palace without him. Amen? That's the exhortation here is David's winning these battles. Again, the same Damascus is that capital city today of Syria, where the Armenians are. And the Syrians, like today, were a nation directly north of Israel. And when they tried to help Zobah, they too were defeated, verse 7 and 8. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Tibhath and from Chun, the cities of Habadezer. David brought a large amount of bronze with which Solomon made the bronze seas, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. And what's awesome about this, remember two chapters ago, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and he was told he couldn't. And we know from other Bible texts, because he was a man of war. And because he was a man of war, God was not going to allow him to, rebuild the to build the temple. 
But what God didn't allow him to do is gather up the materials, which is what he's doing right here. Notice it says he's gathering up gold and bronze. And it says there in that text that Solomon is going to use those materials that were won in battle to make the furnishings that would go into the temple. So guys, sometimes we might have a desire to do something for the Lord, but it's not really what we're called to do. But God may use us to take part in that ministry in a different way. Amen? By the way, let me just say this. I've got another new friend, uh, another divine appointment. Our church softball team was playing the other night, and the third baseman on the other team and I started talking, and he's plant, he just planted a church. So you know he and I are friends already, because I love church planters. When they say it's the base diving of ministry. You go to a city, you jump off the cliff and say, Lord, catch me, right? And, and you know what? This guy's doing that. And we started talking about the Lord. We we're talking about, again, just the privilege it is to jump out in faith for the Lord. But what, what, what we talked about is this. I said, you know what's just as important as somebody who's called to plant a church is people who are called to come alongside the person planting the church. Amen? When, when the first person shows up and can play a guitar, dude, you're leading worship, get up there. <laughs> Anybody's willing to, I'll serve in the children's ministry. Praise the Lord, we need that. And, you know, and, and praise God for people who are willing to come and say, yeah, this church is just getting started, and I know it doesn't have a youth group yet, and I know it doesn't have all these other ministries yet, but I want to come and be a part of it and watch God do something. So look, it's not just the person who goes out and plants the church, but the people who are called by God to help plant the church. Amen? And that's what's happening here. You know, with others, you know, David, you can't build a, you can't build a temple, but you can bring the materials so your son can build the temple. And that's what's happening here and David's being faithful, even though he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. In this case, he was faithful. He's winning these battles. He's conquering all of God's enemies, all the enemies of Israel. He's taking their riches. He's forcing them to pay taxes. He's showing that David ruled over them by giving them taxes, disabled and defeated the armies from buying more weapons by taking their riches and getting rid of their army. And David brought the spoils and gave them to the Lord. So he took all that God blessed him with as he was being faithful to the Lord, and he gave it to the Lord. And guys, when God uses us, let's give it all to the Lord. It's not about us, it's about him, amen? So David would not see it built, he still did all he could to prepare for it. So point number two there, step out in faith, trusting God to show up in a powerful way. We've seen David fighting all the armies that surround Israel and God's given him victory. He's expanding the land because he's stepping out in faith and he's being faithful to his calling. Then seek to do God's will, God's way for his glory. Look at verse nine. Now when Tau king of Hamath heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, king of Zorah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Tau, and Hadagram brought with him all the kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. So David wins all these battles, and all of a sudden this guy shows up with a bunch of presents. And he brings all these presents to David, and he's like, dude, you just wiped out the guy I've been trying to fight for a bunch of years, and I haven't been able to beat him. Have you ever heard that term, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So he had wiped out his enemy. So right off the bat, I was like, he did what? He knocked out the, 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 the bully of the street. He took care of him for us. We don't have to fight him anymore. Dude, I like this guy already. So he comes out, and he brings gifts to King David. Thank you for taking care of my enemy. 
Thank you for blessing me when you didn't even know me. David has a new admirer. He'd been at war again with Hadadezer, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he brought riches to David. Joram, a high-ranking official, shows appreciation for David defeating the enemy, and the enemy, again, was one that he could not overcome on his own. See, guys, here's the reality. We can't overcome the enemy on our own. First and foremost, we need the Lord. Amen? But we also need other believers to hold up our hands sometimes. Amen? We need people to come alongside us and to encourage us. We have the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? But you, you know, when we, it, we're, you know, the Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. And Christianity is not for the lone ranger. When we try to do it on our own, we often fail. Amen? We need other believers to encourage us. So he brings the treasures to David. He brings tribute to David. It's an act of appreciation, likely to bring peace with David as well, to avoid being attacked and defeated. And then verse 11, King David then dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold he had brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. Who remembers Amalek? The Amalekites. Remember them? This was the beginning of the end for King Saul. He was told to wipe out all the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a vicious people, and where we see them early on in Scripture is when the children of Israel, after being delivered out of bondage in Egypt, are marching through the wilderness, the Amalekites would be up in the hills, and they would see the elderly that were behind, or the people that were invalids, or, the, or maybe the, you know, whoever's the weak amongst the group, and they would sneak up from behind, and they would capture those who were the, the, the weakest among them, and they would slay them and take all of their stuff. And then we see in the text that the Lord says, Amalek, I have seen what you have done, and I will not forget it. He gives them 300 years to repent. God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. And what does he do? He tells Saul, I want you to go out and wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. Now, people struggle with this when they see God wiping out entire nations. We need to read the whole Bible because he gave them 300 years to repent. He desires that none should perish. He suffers long, but he won't suffer always. But what did King Saul do, remember? Instead of killing all the Amalekites, he killed some of the Amalekites. And he brought back the king of the Amalekites. And he had him chained up and was marching through his territory going, look at me, I got the king of the Amalekites. I'm a bad dude, look at that. Got him. They also kept everything that was of value. He told him to wipe out everything. He brought back all the animals. Well, then Samuel showed up. And Samuel was the prophet. And he says to him, he comes and says to him, he talks to him about him fighting the Amalekites. And what does he say? Saul says, I did everything the Lord asked of me. By the way, you can lie all you want, God knows better. Amen? And he said, I did all that was asked of me. And then he, and I love God's sense of humor. And it says in the text that you hear the baying of sheep in the background. Bah! I did everything. Bah! And Samuel says, Really? What's his, what's his lowing of sheep I hear? And then here's what he says. Oh, the people took the animals and brought them back to sacrifice to your God. I cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more. I stole so I could give more to the Lord. And by the way, it wasn't really me. It was the people that were with me. You know, when you're confronted with sin, you could do one of three things. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. 
He makes excuses and accuses. Well, it was them. And we brought it back to give it to your God. By the way, he didn't say our God. He says your God. Well, what happens? So Agag, the king of the Amalekites, comes out in chains. And out walks 70, 85-year-old Samuel. And Samuel says, bring Agag out to me. And when Agag sees this old man come out, he's like, whew, I'm safe. And what does Samuel do? He, he, what does he do? He takes what? And what does he do to Agag? He cuts him into pieces. Now, Agag was the king. See, the Malachites are a picture of the flesh. Agag was the king of the flesh. Some of us, we got saved and we hold on to one pet sin. I've met people, they get saved, but they're still living with a girlfriend. Or they get saved and they're still doing whatever that thing, partying, whatever that thing is. That, well, I love Jesus, but I'm just holding on to one thing. But notice how he, they put the king of the flesh to death with the sword. And the sword is a picture of what? The word of God. Amen? How do we have victory over that stronghold in our life? It comes through the word of God and the spirit of God, again, overtaking our life. Amen? So he wiped out. The Amalekites got beat finally. They should have been beat a long time ago. Philistines should have been taken care of a long time ago. And now finally, a godly man obeys God, does what God commands, and he doesn't leave any enemy standing. He, God brings victory as he steps out. See, it's too often I think that we are limited in what we do for the Lord because we have areas that we think we'll never have victory over. Well, yeah, that's just a struggle for me. I can't do that. That's too much for me. I don't want to let go of that. Well, that's not that big a deal. I mean, and the enemy will lie to you. He'll whisper in your ear. Well, you're saved anyway. He's already redeemed you for all of your sin. You can hold on to that. He'll still let you into heaven. And the truth is, yeah, but here's the reality is you'll miss out on God's highest. And we don't want to put anything above the Lord because anything we put above the Lord becomes an idol. Amen? No other gods before me. No graven image. And here's what King David is doing. He's wiping them all out. There was always a reason why a king didn't want to fight. There was always a reason why they failed. There were times when they would integrate with them. They'd bring their idols in, and they became idol worshipers. And then God would have to righteously judge them. Here, King David is set on doing what God has commanded, and he won't stop till it's all done. And I pray that that would be the heart of everyone in this room tonight, everybody listening to this later, that we would not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives, that we want to live our lives sold out for the kingdom of God, and we want to finish strong for him, and we want to do everything that he's called us to do. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. That's what God's heart should be. That's what our heart should be for the Lord. God is for me. Who can be against me? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And then it says there, he also put garrisons. Oh, verse 12. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 12. So king, he dedicated the people, the Philistines, and from Amalek. Moreover, Amashai, the son of Zariah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The Valley of Salt is on the outskirts of the Dead Sea. Uh, it, it's what's interesting, when you look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, it says David won the battle. Here it says Abishai won the battle. See, people, and some have even used that as a contradiction. Well, who won the battle? Well, David was the commander, and Abishai was the man who God used, who David sent out to, to lead them into battle. So they both won the battle. One was the commander. One was probably, you know, you know the general on the ground. And so they, they wiped out 18,000 more people. And we're noticing, we don't even see, I, I don't know how much, if anybody in Israel died or not, because we don't see it here. 
They're wiping out enemy after enemy after enemy. We're not seeing a list of fatalities for the children of Israel. There may have been some, but it's not talking about it. Again, because if God is for us, who can be against us? He also put the garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So located on the southwest coast of the Dead Sea. By the way, the Dead Sea is pretty amazing. Has anybody here ever been to the Dead Sea? Four of us, okay. You cannot sink. It's got so much salt in it that you float. And by the way, if you have any sores that you didn't know you had, you would find out quickly. Because, you know, you ever heard about putting salt in a wound? You get in that Dead Sea. You know, but you know why the Dead Sea is dead? Because it's all inlet and no outlet. Things only flow into it. Nothing flows out of it. So it gets all stagnant. Some even believe, you know, who knows? There's people that talk about maybe that's the, the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, we don't know, but it's just a place that's been made desolate. And it's as hot as it gets. Man, it's hot there. And the water is just so salty. Literally, you can lay on your side like this and you won't sink. It's just bizarre. But see, at the same time, it's dead because it's all in the inlet and no outlet. And you know what? We can be spiritually dead if all we do is get fed. If we're just an inlet, we're just getting, you know, the biggest, fattest sheep in town. All we do is eat, right? And we just get so fat. And the reality is that we want to be fed and we want there to be an inlet, the, the word and, and, you know, being, a, you know, being in fellowship and all those things that are helping us grow spiritually. But the reality is at some point, we need to take what's been given to us and pour it out on somebody else. Amen? We don't want a spiritually dead life. But they've won the battle all the way. So you'll know from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is down the southernmost part of Israel. You go down there, and man, it's kind of out on its own. There's nothing growing out there. It's desolate. And from, that, from there all the way, you know, to, you know, from Dan to Beersheba, right? It talks about from where the tribes are, the expanse of Israel, the valley of Israel. Salt And David has defeated the enemy at this point in every direction. He's expanded Israel and God's kingdom in every direction. David, a man for God's own heart, was used mightily by God. And the same David who had moments of fear and doubt, who had fled to the land of the Philistines, who had lied to the priest, who had acted like a dead man. Again, fleshly David failed. But spiritual David, spirit-filled David, focused on doing God's will, giving God the glory, and is now ruling all over, over all the land that God had promised to Abraham a thousand years earlier in Genesis 15. See, Saul was so focused on fighting his own people. Saul spent most of his life wanting to kill David because he knew that David was more gifted, and God's hand was upon David. And the kingdom had been ripped from him. And he saw David as a threat. And he was so busy fighting within and even grew hatred for his own son, Jonathan. And we see these battles. with David. He's so busy fighting with his own people that he never really had victory over any of the enemies of God. And this can happen in the church. That we can so be, be so busy arguing with other Christians about non-essentials when we need to be telling people that don't know the Lord about Jesus. Amen. We get in that place where we just sit around and, and I, I, it's just nauseating. Nelson called me again. Nelson's the Jehovah's Witness that calls me about once a month. 
gives me a different name every time he calls and says, oh, I was looking at your website and I want to talk to one of the pastors. I go, hey, Nelson, what's up, bro? <laughs> Pastor Dave, yeah, can we finish our conversation? I go, bro, we finished it last time. We're done with that conversation. You don't want to talk to me? I go, no, look, if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, if you reject him as being the creator and the savior of the world, and if you only will use your version of the Bible that you translated your own way to meet your, the, what your cult believes, we have nothing to talk about. Now, if you want to sit down and have a real conversation, I'd be happy to do that. And then he starts, and, and he starts giving me things. Well, what prophecy? I go, you've got a magazine in Brooklyn you say equal to the Bible. That's game over. You've predicted the end of the world 17 times. Hasn't happened. False prophets. We're done. I don't have time for that anymore. And, and I'm not going to spend all my time debating him. You know what I want to do? I want to reach out to people that need to hear about Jesus, that are hungry to know about him. Amen? And if you pray that God will bring people into your path, I promise you. One of my favorite, I have about four or five verses that I claim as you know, life verses. And one of them, it, we're almost there. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of, one whose heart is loyal to him. See, God's not looking for a better message or a better building or a better, you know, a, a better way of doing things. He's just looking for men and women who will say, Lord, I'm here. Use me. Lord, whatever the question is, the answer is yes, I'm in. Look, you need someone to hug somebody today? Use my arms. You need somebody to give someone a word of encouragement? Lord, use my voice and my lips. Lord, you need someone to be cared for financially? Use your finances that you have in my bank account. Amen? You know, to, just be, to be available. He's looking for people to say, Lord, use me. And when you, say, when you wake up in the morning, say, Lord, use me today for your kingdom and your glory. Bring about divine appointments. Help me to be sensitive. Help me to see people through your eyes. Help me to love people the way you love them. And Lord, when that opportunity comes, please don't let me miss it. And then give me the words to speak. And you know what? God answers that prayer. Amen? Amen. Can you imagine if every spirit-filled believer on this planet, if we would all wake up every morning looking for an opportunity to love on somebody in Jesus' name, to minister to somebody, to encourage somebody, to share with them the hope that lies within us. One of the ways you do that, be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pick up the phone and call somebody. God puts someone on your heart. Pick up the phone and call them and encourage them. Make yourself available to take people to lunch. Make yourself available. Open your house. Invite people over. Let's, let's, it's God's house. It's God's stuff. It's God's time. Let's use it for him. Amen? And God's using David because he's now a man who's walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And again, it says, and the Lord preserved David everywhere he went. See, David was victorious because David was walking with the Lord. Now, do people walk with the Lord and die in battle? What's the answer? All the time. That being said, they can't threaten us with heaven. Heaven's better, amen? I had a, it wasn't a big deal, but initially I had my blood test. I had to have my blood drawn three times because they were concerned about a couple things in my blood test. And a couple things, they were just, they're playing it down, but they're like, well, I'm a little concerned about this. And I'm like, what is it? You know, well, it's this organ. And I'm like, well, that's cool. That if, if they tell me I've, I'm dying in three months, I'll, I'll preach for three months and I'll go hang out with Jesus. Amen? <laughs> you know, you can't threaten me with heaven. And, I, I, and then I get my doctor who goes to church here, she texts me and said, oh, it looks better. And I said, oh, so I guess I got to wait to go to heaven, huh? 
let's be about it for the kingdom of God while we're here. Amen? Now watch this as we close. Now watch, he's going to give ministry away. And this is important. There are churches that fail today because they're all built on one man or a group of men. And I love what Pastor Don McClure told me. He was my pastor in San Jose. He said, Dave, the success of a ministry is seen in not how it functions when you're there, but how it functions when you're not. See, if you're giving ministry away, if, if it's built on the Lord, you don't have to be there. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, who's the pastor? Joshua Camper. Why do I tell you that? Because I don't want, we're not having search committees. I'll be in heaven. I won't be worried about it. But <laughs> we're not having search committees. We're not going to vote. We're not doing any of that nonsense. You see churches spending five years trying to find their next pastor. That means the pastor that was there before didn't do his job. Amen? So David gives ministry away. Watch this. So David reigned over all Israel and ministered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahatub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priest. Shavshah was the scribe. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers at the king's side. So I've, I wrote down here kind of what his, what these guys were, because he, the Lord preserved David, the Lord protect David, and now David's going to give ministry away, and we see how he gives that territory. So Zariah was basically the secretary of defense. Jehoshaphat was the chief of staff. Ahiatub and Ahimelech and Abiatar were spiritual leaders. Zariah was the secretary of state. Benaniah, David's sons, were the governors who stood alongside him. So he not only dedicated all the spoils to, of the Lord to the all, all the spoils to the temple, but David would later give the equivalent of a hundred million dollars of his own wealth toward the building of the temple, and then he gave ministry away. See, David didn't make it about him; he made it about him. Amen. And that's what we're always called to do. We make it about him. People will say this to me sometimes, and depending on, the time, on what's going on, I may or may not correct him, but they'll say, oh, I love your church. It's not my church, it's his church. Amen? And it's just as much your church as my church because we are the church. Amen? And so we want to see the kingdom of God grow. So he was not just a mighty warrior, but he was also a just ruler. He was, or, he was into organizing God's people. You never saw that with King Saul. Do you know that our God's a God of order? What's the answer? Okay, you see things going on in churches where people are rolling around the dirt and barking like dogs and roaring like lions. They got to put them in a drunk tank. That's nowhere in scripture, amen? You don't have, you're not teaching a Bible study and 12 people get up and start ripping in tongues. Why? Because God is not going to interrupt, the Holy Spirit's not going to interrupt himself, Amen? So he's a God of order, and we see there's order here. There's order that takes place. He sets men in positions that, where God has called them to be. And again, Israel was a great nation as long as they were submitted to the Lord and obeyed his word. And again, notice how lean the government was. There were literally millions of people, and you saw how many people were leading. Well, that's a, that could be used in a political message, amen? Yeah, millions of people, 20 guys in charge. We got, we got more people in charge than we can count, amen? You want a great nation? Follow God's word, follow God's law. We don't need new laws if we follow God's law, amen? 
we can throw away all the laws if we just obey these. Amen? And then we take this out of school, and we wonder why the crime rate went up. We take this out of school, we wonder why while immorality and divorce go up. And you know what's amazing? They let you have Bibles in prison. If they put them in school, we'd have less people in prison. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> we need God's word. You want a great nation? Follow God's word. The more we get away from God's word, the more government, the more laws try to fix the problems of sinful men. A law will not fix sinful men. Only God's word will. I was blessed to teach out at the prison in uh, the fire camp in Camarillo, and we saw that place turn around. There were 80 people in the entire camp, and sometimes as many as 50 to 60 guys would show up for the Bible study. And there was always this thing about races can't intermingle. And I said, you're mingling in here, you better mingle out there. And don't say, well, this is our, this is our table, and this is our table, and this is our basketball court. We're all believers. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And the captain calls me up and says, I don't know what's going on in that Bible study, but it's changing this place. See, guys, we got to get away from all the world's rules and follow the Lord. Amen? And if we follow the Lord, it'll take care of everything else. A foundation that will survive the fiery trials of this life is one that is built upon the Lord. Is, your, is, your, is he the foundation of your life? Are you standing upon him and upon his word? Or are you chasing after the things of the world? So in closing, it's time to enter into the battle, to live a life that the Lord has called you to. Number one, by waking up to God's calling upon your life. Get back to your first love. Make Jesus the most important thing. If your career has become, do your job as unto the Lord. You guys all know I have a full-time job, and it's a taxing job. It takes a lot of time, especially right now. Very busy. But you know what? I do my job. I want to honor Jesus, but it's never more important than Jesus. Amen? And the same is true. We want to be the best workers. We want to be the best neighbors. But again, we never make our job more important than God. We never make our standing before men more important than our relationship with the Lord. We need a strong foundation. We need to make him our first love. Take your focus off your circumstances and the trials of life and keep them on the Lord. Number two, step out in faith, trusting God to show up in a powerful way. You know what? It's scary to get out of your comfort zone. But you know what? It's a blessing when you get out of your comfort zone and you see God show up, amen? When you go out and say, I'm gonna do this. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. I'm gonna do it anyway because God's told me to. God is faithful. Believe that the Lord will do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. Number three, seek to do God's will, God's way for his glory. David was used mightily and David kept pointing to the Lord. He kept giving the, the honor to God. He gave his riches to the building of the temple. He didn't make it about him. He made it about the Lord. And then finally, give ministry away. Our God is a God of order. It's not about building your ministry, but building the kingdom of God. Amen? Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that tonight, what you have exhorted us with, that we would apply it tonight and tomorrow. Lord, give us divine appointments tomorrow. Give us opportunities to share the hope that lies within us. Help us to be available that we might minister to those who are hurting. Lord, lead us by your spirit to pick up the phone and call those who need a word of encouragement. Help us, Lord, to use your resources for your kingdom and your glory, not our comfort. And Lord, I pray that you would bring revival. Bring revival, Lord, and start in our hearts first. Revive us, O Lord. Light that fire in our lives again. Help us to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said...